Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Louisa Terrell, former assistant to the president and head of legislative affairs for President Biden. During her tenure, she helped the president rack up bipartisan legislative wins despite an extremely challenging legislative environment. A 50-50 Senate, a House with only a four-seat majority, and oh, by the way, COVID, which made the first year of operating in the White House and with Capitol Hill extraordinarily difficult. And yet, Biden's first term is being described as one of the most productive in recent memory. A partial list includes the American Rescue Plan, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, gun safety legislation, the first in decades, and then there are the judges. Louisa and her team helped get more than 100 judges confirmed, including one Supreme Court justice. Louisa was at the center of all of that. Her career to that point had her well-prepared for the role, She had also served in the Obama White House in the Office of Legislative Affairs as Chief of Staff to Senator Cory Booker, as Counselor to FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler, as Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Division in Massachusetts, plus three stints in the private sector. She also knows President Biden really well, a strength that staffers, even ones who work for their bosses for a long time, may never truly get to experience. Louisa worked for Biden when he was in the Senate, as Deputy Chief of Staff and Counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was there that she earned his trust, and he himself said that he came to rely on her wise counsel and skill. Later, she was also Executive Director of the Biden Foundation. I've had the pleasure of knowing Louisa for more than a decade, and I've got to work with her. She is incredible, but rather than list all of the superlatives that I think she deserves, here is what others have said. Biden advisor Steve Reschetti called her indispensable to the White House's accomplishments. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer described her advocacy and effort on the Hill as tireless. White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients pointed out that she was the first person hired for the transition team and someone who helped both identify and confirm the president's cabinet. I am so happy and humbled that I got to interview Louisa for this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. We recorded our conversation on Friday, October 27th. Louisa Terrell, welcome to Staffer. Thanks, Jim. I um, It's such a privilege to be here. I've been looking forward to it all week. And I will say that, again, as a staffer, I did my homework and I've had a chance to listen to some of the episodes and they're just fantastic. I found myself learning amazing things about Patrick Gaspard or Deputy Secretary Trottenberg. And it's just an amazing array and incredible both stories and real teachable teachable moments. So congratulations to you about putting together that is such a necessary piece of our little ecosystem here in Washington, D.C. So it's a privilege. Well, you are so kind to say those things. I have been looking forward to this conversation as well. Um, You are someone who I have really admired both as a colleague and from a distance. Um, Because you've listened to episodes, you know that I like to start at the beginning. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about where you grew up and what family life was like. Sure, sure. It's a pleasure. Um, So I am from the great state of Delaware, and that is where I grew up and then spent some time in Boston area before coming to Washington. As I was thinking about sort of what are the salient points about how I thought about being in politics, there were sort of a couple things that jumped out at me, Jim, about how I grew up. 
The first one is my mom. My mom went back to school and finished her college degree after she had three kids. And then she went on to get her PhD at Temple. And it was such a formative experience for me in that I got to watch firsthand and experience sort of a different way about how women work and have a family. And so in my family, we didn't have dinners together. We had breakfast together. So you had to get your butt out of bed and come down for breakfast because that was the time where my mom wasn't in class or wasn't working. I have very um, distinct memories of my mother's handwriting because there were notes all over the house that were directing about what we should eat, what we should do while she was gone, whether she was, again, finishing her degree or finding unconventional work time so that she could um, become a psychologist. And for me, I think about my work here and I'm always... I really am thinking a lot about what it's like to be a woman in this place and how I'm behaving and what are choices, what's not a choice, what is a balance, what is reality. Um, And that was very formative. I think the other thing is for me, um, you know, I really identify as being a Quaker. I went to Quaker school for 12 years um, when I've been here, both in Boston and also in Washington, being part of a, a meeting for worship. And there's two things about that. There's a philosophy that God's light is in everyone. And you can imagine in my job, you need a little patience and you need to remember that God's light is in everyone. And there is a sort of um, reminder that you should let your life speak, like let your, your outer life reflect your inner life. And when I look at And you don't always do that perfectly, right? And you are always searching in that way. And when I think about who I've worked for, what I've worked for, I've tried to use that as kind of sometimes the touchstone about the politics. So I didn't grow up in a hugely political family, but it's those, those to me are sort of the, the pieces that I come back to. And there's certainly people that I grew up with. And it was also really healthy for me to have time in Boston, Jim, because my friends in Boston are not thinking about politics. They're nurses, they're in academia, they're community activists, they're HR managers, like they're people that I'm very close to in my own, you know, your informal focus group. Um, and that helps me, it has helped me think about the work sometimes when it can be such a, um, it's such a, it is the proverbial bubble here. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful, both the, the story about your mom and, and your upbringing in the Quaker community and what that, what that means for how you mm-hmm. approach people. So how did you meet politics? Mm-hmm. I, I know you went to law school. You went to Tufts uh, for undergrad. Yeah. You went to law school at Boston College. Um, how did you become aware that you wanted to work in politics? Yeah. So one thing that is always was my my first real political job, or not even political job, my political internship, is I worked for the mayor of Cambridge, this fabulous, fabulous guy, Frank Duhay. And one of my jobs was going to city council meetings every week and just taking copious notes, right? Because he would have to come in and out. And these things were endless, Jim. I mean, truly, you can't imagine. I got my first lessons like, politicians like to talk. Um <laughs> But there was their specialty. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but I found, you know, there was this part of it. It is 
sort of this relentlessness about their drive and that there is nothing too small. And they were fighting about really important things about sort of how healthcare was going to be delivered in Cambridge and the equity part of that. And at the same time could spend hours on a playground. And I just, I really, I just loved it. And so for me, that was sort of this, this is where it happens. And I got that view. And then I think the other thing that happened when I was in Boston, I was working as a litigator in the civil rights division at the um, attorney general's office, the Massachusetts attorney general office. And there was this shift that happened for me, Jim, where you're seeing litigation, you're doing consent decrees. They would obviously have a broader impact, but I really got the this bug that policy and politics is where you could just impact way more people. And that litigation was a really important tool, but there was a way that I didn't want to do all the fighting there. I wanted to do the fighting in politics and policy. And that was the sort of turn for me to come to Washington and to sort of start this policy politics journey where all that effort felt like it could kind of land somewhere in a, in a, in a way that had have more more meaning, more durability, more impact. You know, I, I read an interview that you gave about the law school experience and your time in the law. And you said one of the things that you really liked about that time was how creative you can be in a legal setting mm-hmm. with solving problems. And is that something, you know, it, and I agree with you, is that something you feel that you brought to the political side where, you know, sometimes searching for solutions is sometimes that's not what people are doing. But even when they really are trying to find solutions, they can sometimes just run into dead ends. Yeah. No, I definitely saw that, Jim. And in some ways, again, kind of going straight to the Judiciary Committee in that way, it did really allow you to kind of think through innovations and doing things differently. And where would that be? Some of that's like on the nitty-gritty sort of programmatic stuff that you and I worked on when we were on the Hill. Some of it's funding solutions, and then some of it is kind of quote unquote new laws you're making. But I do think that that was a real nudge about you. You you don't you're not always doing things the exact same way, and that's I think a healthy um, perspective to kind of keep pushing when you're when you're a staffer. Yep. Okay. So as you mentioned, you come to D.C. Mm. You're working for Senator Biden on the Senate Judiciary Committee, where you are the deputy chief of staff and counsel. Before he was president and vice president, Senator Biden already had a reputation in Washington for being extremely personal in his approach to navigating Senate relationships. So are there, you know, Biden rules of navigating the Senate <laughs> that, that you know, shaped your early career on the Hill that you've applied for the rest of it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question, Jim. Let's just say, yes, the indoctrination started very early. It is true. You know, I often remind people, Jim, and again, you know this so well because you are on the Hill, is when you were working for then Senator Biden, you never came to him with an idea that you hadn't sort of lined up a Republican. You know, there were, and and this is the Judiciary Committee, so you can imagine, right, this is a, this is some really tough issues. And there were certainly members down dais from him that were not, that were there to make a message, make a principle, keep pushing the dialogue, knowing that something may not be law, but that it was an important. And I'm not saying that, that then Senator Biden didn't care about those issues as well. Of course. But as a staffer, I really, every what really stands out to me at that time 
is negotiating with then Senator DeWine, Senator Hatch, Senator Specter. I mean, there were ways in which I knew those staffers as well as I knew other Democrats who were on who were um, staffers with me on the Judiciary Committee. So that was just sort of one piece for Biden. Don't come to me. Come to me with like how this is actually going to work, and that you figured out a, a compromise that is still um, still palatable and still impactful. I think that's one. And the personal side of this is like I tell this story all the time, Jim. Um, when I had what got pregnant for my first kid in D.C., I hadn't been here very long. I didn't have a huge neighborhood posse. I didn't know a lot of women who were on the Hill who had kids yet. I was just, I was like, I was like such a newbie in 500 different ways. And I, um, when I went back to work, you know, Senator Biden, you know, this is the Senate. There aren't, there's not HR somewhere. It was very clear. I wanted to come back and work Monday through Thursday. And he was like, yes, I go home on Thursday. You should go home on Thursday. You should have Friday. And if you, I need you, I know where you are. And there was just a way that from the very beginning, that conversation was so easy, was so not an issue that it just, he just matched, like he talked, when he walked where he talked, right? And so that piece about being personal, about friend, about your family coming first, I know people say it all the time, but I really lived that. And, you know, my kids, she's going to be 21, right? This is 21 years ago. Again, the world was a little bit of a different place then. And so that was uh, that was just very formative for me. Yeah. I mean, another part of, of President Biden's story is how committed to his family he has been from the moment he arrived in the Senate. Obviously, he experienced the, the worst possible tragedy and then went back and forth to Delaware um, every you know, every day, certainly every week, but every night, uh, you know, unlike most members, when they come to Washington, they spend at least the week here. He was going back and seeing his boys. Um, you growing up in Delaware crossed paths with, mm -hmm. with Senator Biden early in life. So you had at least a small window into who he was outside of the Senate. Yeah. Does that, you know, I could see that being an advantage in some ways and almost a hindrance in some ways. How did you navigate that? I think that, you know, you're doing your job. You need to have your game face on every day. And you need to remember as a staffer, you were not elected to anything. And the person whom you worked for was truly elected. And, and that's where your responsibilities are. So I don't think it changed sort of how, you know, having your act together yes, this has to be done in 15 minutes. You're not going to get of extra course. time. There was no, you know, there's just sort of no leeway in that way. I, I do say sometimes there are moments because, you know, I know him as my dad, like the dad of my friend before I kind of understood how his obviously incredible stature in the Senate, you know, at times it makes you just a little less nervous. And it's really nice sometimes even when we're having a policy discussion, he'll be like, oh, you know that road, like where, you know, Route 14 comes into. And, and for us, it's a nice touchstone where you're like, right, people, these pe like people that we all know, no one is thinking about politics 24-7 like we are. And there's just kind of a, can be that kind of connect that is, I think, just reassuring, if that makes sense. Yeah, Absolutely. I want to I'm going to get back to your uh, time in the White House, both during the Obama administration and in the Biden White House. Um, but since we're talking about the Senate, you were also 
chief of staff to Senator Cory Booker. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did a stint in the White House uh, before that. Um, and I believe it was right after Senator Booker was elected. Yeah, so he it was got a elected new him. office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were standing it up. What was that like? Because that's a different animal. Totally, totally. I have to say, Jim, so fun to have someone who's so enormously talented, like Senator Booker, who had, you know, this is all when we were like, ooh, Twitter, like, oh my gosh, like a member who uses Twitter. And yeah. how do you, you know, he he was like this, you know, little, you know, sparkly unicorn that landed in the Senate when, and and knew how to really communicate in a digital way that had was not necessarily the norm for some of his colleagues. I found it to be just a tremendous privilege. I think there were two things. One is it is really fun to sit down with someone and be like, okay, how are you thinking about your your landing here? Like, how are you thinking about sort of a first-year strategy? How are you thinking of Translate being an executive and something he was clearly so very good at and connected to as a mayor and come in and be a legislator? What's different about that? Then there was also sort of taking my Biden rules of the road where relationships are everything. So, okay, how are we structuring time so that you are literally going door to door and meeting a bunch of people? Let's schedule dinners for you. Where do you want to do that? How do you want to do that? So you had this relationship part, and then you had a strategy part where there's, you could think about it, a first year thing. You could think about it. What are the legislative pieces that you would feel like you have done your job, even if it's 10 years from now or a year from now? How are you doing it? And then there was this other piece, Jim, where we had to staff up really quickly, right? He won in a special. So you're yes. thinking about New Jersey pieces. You're thinking about how do you, you know, um, Senator Ted Kaufman is like a one of my rabbis. And he always said, you're making an orchestra, Louisa. Don't hire people that are like you, that you always want to have dinner with. Like, find, you know, make sure that you are getting, you're melding your orchestra. You won't get it right. You're going to have to get rid of a few, an oboe player and a flutist over here, but just try and make an orchestra. And so that was really fun too, because there was so much enthusiasm to work for um, Senator Booker and then thinking that through and um, just sort of putting together, I felt like I got to be part of the scaffolding for, for the Senator. And that was, that was just a real privilege. Oh, I I love that orchestra analogy. It's brilliant. Um, and since we're on the topic of you know hiring staff, building uh, building a phenomenal orchestra that has all the pieces but needs to sound you know as good as it can be, what in your mind makes an outstanding staffer? Mm, that's such a good question. So one thing I'll say, Jim, and again I can say this because I'm kind of an old gal, is. You walk around Washington, D.C., and there are people who are running things, and they'll say, hire people that are smarter than you. And everyone says, of of course, that's great, right? But you have to really internalize what that means. And I think actually being a woman sometimes in a position of authority, it can be even harder, right? Because you feel like you're fighting for your own chops sometimes. But I think it is a real, it is imperative that you have to hire people that are smarter than you. People feel more comfortable sometimes, oh, I'm hiring someone who has a different experience than me. And that feel can feel more, that doesn't give you as much discomfort. Mm-hmm. I do think as you're thinking through building a team, really think to yourself, if you're really doing this, how does that play out in real life? How do you, how do you keep folks who are just smarter than you engaged and they're still on your team? And how do you do that? And it's hard. 
And so when I, but it, but it was also, again, you have, I had such a privilege cause I'm, you know, what's on my, what's on, what I'm selling is great. Like, please come to the white house and be on this team. But I really do think really long and hard about not only getting them in the door, but how do you really think about being part of a team where there are people that are like just really just smarter and better than you? That's one thing I think. And I think the other thing that you need to do is it's such a personable place, Washington. It's we have you like you and I, I mean, we've been friends for for years and years. Like it's just it's so meaningful but you do have to, you do have to hire people. You're like, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really want to hang out with you that much. Like we're just super different. <laughs> and like, we, there's just like, there's like no, no crossover. That is okay. Figure out yes. a way to be on a team with that person and be a okay with that. You can be personable, dignified, lovely, respectful, but you can also just be like, yeah, like there's like no, like we're definitely doing something very different on the weekend. So I've really kind of learned to get, again, comfortable with that. What does that mean in practice? And lastly, I think I, I've had the real luxury, or not luxury, um, it's a gift, that I've worked in a lot of different places. And I think it's important, particularly when I look at the younger generation who are doing lots of different job experiences, do not leave those jobs, not without finding a mentor that's going to pull you along, but those two or three people that you're just going to stay in touch with. And I think that's even harder in remote work, to be honest with you. I think that has ramifications. Yes. But it's always been great to me because then when I can say I'm, I'm hiring, you've got this great group of people, young, old, different places that you're plugging into to help you kind of generate names. That was a much longer answer than you were probably no, anticipating. I'm so no, sorry. <laughs> that, was a, that was a great answer. And I, I actually love how you drilled down on on the chestnut of hire people who are smarter than you because it takes real humility and real confidence. Yes. And yes. right. That's it's really hard to get to that point, as you said, of like, okay, I am I'm gonna move I'm gonna admit that I am I'm not as good or smart as this other person is at this other thing and really yeah. internalize and execute that. Yeah. Totally. I really think Easier that, to say than do. It is. And again, like, you know, we are in a much better gendered world for, for women on the Hill and in the executive branch, without a doubt. But, you know, it is still, there are still some real fights to be, there are some hills. And um, I, I take those seriously. And um, I think it's a, a, a very different hill for staff of color. It's not the same. And certainly, uh, I think much when I look around, I think it is a much higher and harder hill. Um, but I do think it's still out there. And I think that plays into how do you figure out your confidence in that space? Absolutely right. And I, so I want to uh, follow up on that. When you were first on the Hill, Deputy Chief of Staff and Counsel at uh, Judiciary Committee, later Chief of Staff um, with Senator Booker, you know, today there still aren't that many women in positions like that. And there were fewer, you know, when you first came to the Hill. So what is your advice for women and or people of color for whom that, that, you know, that hurdle is higher of proving oneself, right? There's just a greater yeah. amount of doubt. How do you advise young women and people of color who are trying to establish that credibility? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of this is sounds a little bit trite, Jim, and it's it's like, you know, conscious raising from like the 60s, at least for when I think about it from my, I'm speaking from my own experience, from a gender perspective, you got to have a posse. 
you got to have a bunch of, of women. Like for me, as a white woman, there is a cadre of women chiefs of staff or former chiefs of staff who are really important to me. And it's not like we're seeing each other all the time, but there is a text chain that I can kind of ignite that has been really, really valuable. And, um, you know, when I was in the White House and had on, on our team staffers of color, you know, that was getting locked into a, like locked into a posse is without a doubt, just really smart. There are formal ways of doing it, you know, on the Hill. Um, but I also think it's really, uh, important still to do that in a, in an informal way. And you need that. I, I think in part because there, for me, again, speaking just for myself, you need a little bit of a, um, you need a venting place. It's too hard. You can't vent. We're all working in environments. The stakes are too high. They're just, you cannot, you have to be really careful about that. So find a safe space. And two, they're just looking out for a sister. Like on, on our end, like when you're looking for something new, shit goes, oops, sorry, stuff goes wrong. You have, you have a place to go that are, you've got some people who are like, all right, keep an eye out because it happens to everyone. You will need, you all are going to need each other at some point or another. Well, I, I love that piece of advice. Um, and, and as much as one benefits from the posse, you're also a member of somebody else's posse mm -hmm. to your point, mm -hmm. right? You're also contributing to their ability to vent, to problem solve, right? To advance, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me now, uh, take you to your first stint in the White House. Mm. This was... This is uh, you and I together, Jim. This is this our is, glory days. Right. This, this is, is awesome. Where, this, yes. this is great. Let's, Let's go back. Yes. Back in time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, 2009, uh, you and I uh, get to work for President Obama in the Office of Legislative Affairs. And when I kind of zoom way out and look at where you've gotten to be at key moments over the last about mm. 30 years, there have only been two times in the last 28 years when Democrats held the White House, the Senate, and the House. And both of those times, they only held it for two years. Mm. Um, in fact, less than that uh, in the case of, Buff, of the yeah. Obama, Obama administration. And you were there for both of them in critical roles. I'm pleased to say in at both of those moments, Democrats made really good use of the time. When when that first two years of the Obama administration, you know, came to an end, it was described uh, by some historians as the most consequential legislative session since the Great Society. And same with the end of the Biden administration. When when that two year period ended, it was described as one of the most historic lawmaking periods that we've seen in decades. So I have a tough question for you. You have been a part of making law some of the most important laws of the past 50 years. Do you have a favorite or is there one that the experience was just so impactful that you're like, boy, that was really special? And if so, tell us why. That is so hard. You are really telling me to pick amongst my children and I, I love them both. So I'm not going to do that. Well, you've had... So many children, right, if right. we're calling the laws that you've been a part of children, my God, it's incredible. Great teams to be part of. You know, Jim, I think, um, 
I think sort of three things stand out to me. Obviously, I have a kid who has juvenile diabetes. It is incredibly meaningful to me that she could not be thrown off healthcare. I saw what ACA has done for America. I saw the kind of discipline that you did, the team did to get that across the line. And then I felt it so personally. And then you fast forward, and I'll never forget this. I we we do meetings in the morning in the White House. They started, we would do them on Zoom, obviously, in the beginning, which was sort of surreal, right? We're all in the White House, but we can't all meet together because of COVID. And then they kind of, as we things got better, we would be down in the Roosevelt Room in the White House. And I remember with the President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and what we did to cap insulin prices under Medicare, it's a really big deal because as someone who's got a kid who has diabetes, you're always thinking in your mind... What if she doesn't have a job when she's 28? What what if she doesn't have something when she's 32? You're always thinking about, because there are sort of monthly costs, that if she doesn't have them, at some point she would die. So I remember being in the room and just sort of, we had, I think we were rolling out the, the 35 cap. And, you know, I just got choked up in front of my colleagues. And I just said, like, there's so much we did in IRA, but I just have to tell you as a parent like this means so much to me. Like, yes, my child is not yet eligible for Medicare. So we've got some time, but it's, we're on the right, we're on the right road. And that if we can keep battering at this, I could be in a world where, you know, my kid is always going to have what she needs to stay alive. And so I kind of bookend that kind of ACA story because I learned so much in that experience of watching what President Obama did, what our team had to do, what the whole White House senior staff do, and really just such discipline, Jim. And I really tried to take that and say to ourselves, as you rightfully put it, you only you the only thing we have very little of is time. Every day that you're not moving your ball forward, you're losing. And so, and you can't do everything. So how do you manage that deficit of time? And I thought about how President Biden had a, had a plan, how we were hewing to it, and how that means sometimes other things had to go away. And you had to have some hard conversations sometimes with your colleagues. But that, that discipline really made me think about how to maximize time in, in service of what President Biden wanted to do. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. And just as I, as I, you know, try to put myself in what, you know, shoes you were standing in right after President Biden was elected and then heading into that new administration. I mean, not only were you managing against time, which every, you know, president has to manage against, but as you said, COVID, you couldn't even be meeting with your colleagues or engage with Capitol Hill in the way that we all grew up doing and knew how to do. There, you know, while there was a majority, it was a tiny yeah, majority. Yeah. It was a 50-50 Senate. And was it four votes in the House? I mean, it was the slivers yeah. uh, of, right, uh, of margin. So what you did with those tiny margins and with those additional obstacles is just even more impressive. So you had, my question for you is, you had been in the Office of Legislative Affairs, which I read this uh, description of it once as it was described as an ambulatory bridge across a constitutional divide, mm. which Wow, I love. that's that's very, um, that's very interesting. So, but then now you're in charge of it. Mm. So you have to build your own 
OLA. What are some of the principles that you brought to that structure, you know, so it performed the way it needed to for the president and also that you wanted to see? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Jim, I really thought about our time together a lot. I mean, I'm so lucky that I got to be in one capacity and then in a different capacity. I mean, look, it is a huge advantage to walk into the White House and know where the bathrooms are. You just can't, you can, and, and, and sort of do that times 10 and all the things you're wrestling with, you're like, oh, no, no, I got all that stuff. So it allows you to be a little bit more focused and have your anxiety be in the right place and not about some of those other things. But truly, Jim, I think about the team that we had together when we were in the White House. And a lot of that is of great credit to Phil Shalero, one of our heroes. And I really took a lot of that. Again, I sort of did the orchestra piece again. Um, and I think the other thing that I, I knew because I had sat in a different seat, a big premium in these kind of jobs at the White House is information right? There's just layers of information. President needs to have the most, and then it kind of trickles down from there. And you and I, I know, have this experience. We're like, oh my God, we have the best nugget from the Hill. This guy is going to retire or no, no, no. They said they were going to sponsor and they're not. And we'd be like so excited, be like, hey, Phil. And you'd always have to call Phil. You couldn't email him. You'd just be like, I'm psyched. I am like staffer of the freaking year. And you'd go (laughs) tell him and he'd just like look at you and you'd be like, he already knew that. Like, like someone had told him that, like, like, you know? And so, you know, you, I had that experience, even even saying something to the president and like, you know, the president has tons of relationships. He's talking to members, you know, or to someone like Ron Klain or to Steve Rochetti. And they're like, that's so good, honey. Just go back. Like, just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) But again, the information principle to me was really important to the team. It can feel like there's too many layers sometimes. So some of the, one of the things that I knew kind of going into this, get your orchestra. Everybody's got different skill sets, different relationships. You do your Venn diagram. But I really made a concerted effort and maybe sometimes just like bugging the heck out of them was really sharing as much information as I could. And also having like a real sense of trust and truth. And I was like, if I hear of any of this stuff that gets shared somewhere, like I, I will find you and that will that will have real consequences. Um, and people really abided by those. And it felt like a very trusting environment. And I think that our team was able to kind of drive, be effective, sometimes be inspired when sometimes it was not inspiring up on the hill was to feel like we kind of had in all the, as much information as we possibly could to kind of go in and do that next day. Yep. You mentioned the daily Ledge Affairs meeting. So it's it's very early. It often, you know, starts before people have even arrived on Capitol Hill. Yeah. As the head of Ledge Affairs, what were you looking to get out of that meeting? So I did it two ways. So we had senior staff meetings in the White House. So that was all my various colleagues. I had a a meeting before that with the deputies inside OLA. And then I would do a meeting at the end of the day. And that would allow the team to kind of download where we are. Ah, okay. And so we would definitely do five, six, seven. And then sometimes we'd let people go home, do bed, bath, and beyond with their kids. And then we would all hop on the phone, say at like nine o'clock and have time together. Um, And then... It was really nice also to do some more planning meetings and on the weekends, like I, I mean, I did spend time in the private sector. I like a whiteboard. I'm just saying. So, um, 
you know, it was really great to be able, like, they probably were like, oh my God, I'm here on a Saturday. But for me and how I was thinking about how to design things, where flaws were, where we were, so helpful to just kind of have some real breathing room, which you know, in the White House, you do not have. Great to kind of have the staff together with like people are in jeans. We're just kind of thinking through how this could all roll. Yeah. Um, You have already said um, during this podcast, and I know it about you, you are, you are a credit pusher. Whenever anyone comes to you to say, wow, you've, you've really done something amazing. You take that credit and you put it on a team. And part of your style is um, not not just to share credit so broadly, but you also keep a low profile, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there you don't talk to reporters a lot, mm-hmm. et cetera. Like the, people on the Hill, people in the White House know you exceedingly well, but a public profile is not something you've sought. Is that a preference? Is that a, a strategy? Is it a little bit of both? It is true. I, I'm terrible. Like there could be a whole slew of Politico what? reporters, like literally delivering my Amazon and be like, Hey, I, I like, I'm terrible. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think for me, I, I grew, grew on like, it was always about your boss. Like I'm not here about me at all. That's not like humble, like some martyry thing or something. It's just not, that's not what this job is. My job is to serve president Biden and if there's credit to be told, it should be to the president because that's where it should reside. And if there's anything beyond that, then it means the president, which is very, very true, is good enough and smart enough to put together a team that's really effective. And like to me, that kind of is where it begins and ends. And I just so it's just it's just how I operate, you know, and yeah. and I um yeah, that's just, that's yeah. just how Look, it rolls. It's a philosophy. Yeah. I share it with you. And it is, uh, but it is a choice. Yeah. Like it's a philosophy. It's an adopted choice. And I don't want to call it old school, but it was it much was more, more common. Yeah, yes. I agree it, with it, that. It was the standard operating theory that we came up on. And I think for good reason. Yeah, yeah. And look, to be fair, I don't think there are like friends of ours who have a very different approach. Yeah. And I think that it can be very, very helpful, not only for the person or whatever all that stuff is about, but about some stuff that we care about. It, you can move agendas that way. You can shape things and it can be a very helpful tool. So I don't want to, I don't think it's, it's not good or bad and it can be a very effective tool. It's just not one that I'm particularly adept at. Yeah. No, look, I hear you. And, and the fact that when you're in the White House, you know, even though legislative affairs is the responsibility of the Office of Legislative Affairs and you in a person within a White House, lots, I'd say probably most of the people who work in a White House have spent some time on Capitol Hill. So they have some expertise and relationships which can be brought to bear uh, at the right time. Mm -hmm. And that can be really valuable. Yeah, very valuable. Let me ask you about a challenge that I think would be unique to advising President Biden which is the man spent 36 years as a senator and then eight as vice president. There's probably no one in Washington, D.C. who knows the United States Senate better than President Biden and and knows Capitol Hill as well as anybody. So how did you find, you know, advising him, being his top advisor on legislative affairs? Huge responsibility, right? I mean, that, uh, as we said, that two-year window was the moment, as narrow a gap as you had, to get so much of his agenda through. 
How did you find and how did you approach advising him? Right. It's like you're going up with like the Jedi master. So you're like, how Correct. how will yes. I be like, like sorted to death? Right. Like totally true. <laughs> like definitely. Yes. You're going up to Yoda and being like, okay. And, he, and he's like, you know, I've parked there for 36 years. Believe me. So I thought about it. And again, part of that is um, having worked from him in the Senate, it was a little bit easier kind of knowing a little of the style. I think, um, Two things that I really tried to do, which is kind of going back to what we were speaking about earlier, Jim, is information. He just doesn't have, mm -hmm. you know, he's doing 600 other things that are more relevant. So really what I'm trying to do at the outset is you're always like a little bit of scene setting. Like, here's where we are. Here's where this person or this, this group of people have shifted. Here's why I think they're shifting. And so you really, it almost feels a little bit... um trying to think of the best analogy. It's sort of like a business report because you need data. He's not, you know, for someone who has like the touch, the feel, where the inclination is, where would the institution go? I mean, clearly the president is going to be far superior. So like my little gut reactions, like you and I can shout about it, but that is not going to be useful to the president of the United States. What is going to be useful is it's a very dynamic. We were in things that were very, um, changing sort of day to day, whether you're talking about our infrastructure negotiations on debt ceiling, on uh, IRA, or again, even on bipartisan safer communities pieces, some sort of, so what I really had to do was the most up-to-date, informed, just the facts, ma'am, like here's where we are, here's where this is going. I had to really hold back lots of predictions are probably not as useful. There are some scenarios. So you'd be, so you had to be really kind of thoughtful and tight on how you were presenting possibilities in the future. I think that was one. I think two, the president came into office understanding he both knew Congress so well and that it's also different and that it's changing and that there were new members and there are some new alliances. And so part of it also was to just sort of give him a little bit of that snapshot, the richness of what were some of the the new either players or new dynamics and allow and make sure that he that would be beneficial to him and his agenda that there were ways in which he was getting the touch and feel of that himself. So yeah, so it was like a it just you couldn't be like freewheeling be like ah oh, maybe they'll do that like then there's this and he's like you know, I've seen it all and like I know these people and I know how this is like a living breathing kind of entity and um that's Uber prepared, like counting, yes. counting your noses once, twice, three times, and four times sometimes. Right. Oh my God. Well, I, I just, I, I do want to reiterate how uh, much awe I have for what you and the and the Ledge Affairs team and, and the entire White House and the President accomplished um, together. Generational is the word that comes to mind in terms of the investments that have been made in this country and the economic footing you've put us on, people, like the nation will benefit 20, 30 years down the road, will still be benefiting, you know, decades from now from the choices that the president made and the Congress enacted. Um, and you were there mm -hmm. and part of leading and navigating it to fruition. Um, before I let you go, mm -hmm. I do have a couple of questions that I like to ask people. Love it. Um, one I call in the vault. Can you tell us about a time in your career when you royally screwed up, what you learned from it, and how you recovered? Okay. I thought about this so much, Jim. 
I took a lot of credit. I took a lot of heart from how Patrick Gaspard, because <clears throat> I just got a foot stomp. Like there's so many, right? There's so many. And that's not fun for your listeners. So I'll get to one. But let me just say, <laughs> I think I do want to foot stomp on something that Patrick said, which is a sign of really under, getting comfortable and being in a leadership job is how you deal with mistakes and really keeping yourself from not rear view mirroring it. But also doing kind of the forensics, which sometimes can come, like sometimes the private sector is almost better at giving you a structure to think about how you do the forensics and move on. But I really, I do, I, I took so much um, sort of strength from the way that Patrick really talked about it. Like the, the thing you need to do is to move on. And you have a luxury when you're in the White House about um, things are moving so fast. <clears throat> you're going to, you're going to make mistakes. It's It's just, you can't sort of operate at that speed and not think that some tomatoes are going to fall off the truck. They just do. But I'll tell you something. I, I I had this experience when I was in the Senate working for Biden and we were on the Judiciary Committee and, you know, you're marking up bills. And uh, then one of the Republicans, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Coburn at that point, retired member, starts like lighting into Biden's idea. It, it was a DOJ program and some changes in the law and how much it was going to cost. And, uh, I, I was like, wait, what? And, and I had sort of known how much this sort of one, you know, what, what a year was, but I like had really done my homework about like a four-year projection, a 10-year. And this was the beginning of the time when the Republicans were sort of getting into the offsetting idea. So it was like this sort of explosion in math pause to say I became a lawyer. So I didn't ever have to do math, <laughs> but you know, Biden's looking at me and I'm like, I'm like a deer in a headlight. Like I kind of don't know how, I didn't have a rebuttal prepared. I had thought I'd sort of done all angles and I didn't, I didn't handle myself very well. And, and I think I was just sort of frozen and ashamed. And again, when you're a staffer, your one job is to be over-prepared. You've thought of every angle. It is like crushing when you, when there's like a hole. And I really was like, uh, uh, you know, and I look at that now about how I deal with mistakes now. And you got to come clean really quickly. Like, do not, do not, do not pass, go, don't take a moment. But you, but now, and there were moments when I've had to do this at the White House, where I said, this is, and I always, never, if you work for anyone that throws you under the bus, remember to not work for that person for very long. Amen. And in my job, I owned, those are our, that's our team's mistake. I, we made a mistake. I would come clean. Here are the three things that I think we can do about it. And talk to your peers. And it's not easy, but like the come clean thing, like it is okay to say when you don't know. And now if I knew what I know now, I would turn to center by and be like, I don't know the total answer. I don't know if he's doing a 10-year projection. I don't understand this math. I am sorry. We should have had this better prepared. I will follow up with you. What do you, you know, here are some things we can do in the interim. Or even if I couldn't think of that, you just gotta just say you don't know. In, and say something that you're going to try and, 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 and have another alternative. But I do think uh, owning it, and like that Patrick said that too, just own it and go, okay. And if you think there are people operating the world that are not making mistakes, that's just not true. And it's really, you know, someone said that the White House should be judged in some ways about how it leads on the unexpected, right? Because it is always the unexpected. And I sort of take that as, how do you lead and be a team with with mistakes? Because they're just they're, they're more of where you are than than not. And so um, I've definitely 
have gotten much better at being like, nope, we screwed up. Yep. This was on us. Here's where I think the breakdown is. It won't happen again yep. or it will and go on. So yeah, yep. lots of mistakes. Mistakes are inevitable, as you said, and part of governing. They're part of life. Yeah. They're part of politics. There's there's no massive operation or enterprise. It's not going to have mistakes that are made along the way. Totally. As you said, owning them um, mm-hmm. and moving on to solutions as quickly, you know, like, you know, B, plan B, plan C as quickly as you can. And also mm-hmm. you used a word that I've, I certainly have experienced when I've made my blunders. You felt ashamed, mm-hmm. right? And, and that, and that's a, you need to learn some self-compassion right? Like be hard on yourself for a time, right? So you learn the lesson, but, but like, don't let that time be more than a day. Yeah. Give yourself some grace and, and, and move on. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. My last question for you. I have a notion that one day I'll be able to raise the money and get the permitting to build a hall of fame to staffers on the national mall. Uh, if I am able to do so, who would you nominate oh to be in the Staffer Hall of Fame? Okay, Jim. Jim. <laughs> this question in my preparation that I did. See, it's highlighted. Okay? Yes. Like literally for like three it's nights in the row, I'm just like ticking through. And again, as you know, I've had a lot of different jobs. Oh, and it's amazing. So it's I, impossible. I was like ticking through, like, what about this person? They were so good. And I like thought about that. And then there was another person. And I mean, I, I, I basically planned a wedding of all these different <laughs> staffers that are going to be yes. in my staffer hall of fame. I love that. That's how we'll, that's how we'll open yeah, it. Yeah, no, oh, okay, but keep going. It's the wedding. But I, <laughs> I, I, I landed somewhere that you're going to be like quasi happy with. Um, but I think right now I want to say that my hall of famers are White House staffers, my former colleagues. I'm going to say that for maybe two, maybe three reasons. Let me say at the outset, every single person who walks into the White House, and you and I did it, you pinch yourself, you are one lucky kid. It is the privilege of a lifetime. It is a privilege to work under that pressure. It is a privilege that not very many people get. You don't get it for long, and you have to really be feel to some really deep like universe gratitude. So I say that at the outset. But I will, and then the second thing, you know, you and I know lots of people that have worked in the White House and we know, and you and I have experienced what it's like to kind of go dark. You don't see your friends. You don't really go out. You you know, you're really doing one thing. And you kind of intellectually know that for your friends that are in the White House. But I think when I think about the daily life and particularly for my friends who have kids, and I mean kids that are two and kids that are 18, it is tremendously, it is just tremendously hard. They are, they are present sometimes for things, but they're not present because their phone is constant. They are constantly turning something over in their mind. Maybe like we just said, like a mistake that it felt so bad and had all these crummy consequences. Um, and the relentlessness of that and the ability to feel like I could do laundry, but I've got like, it's 12, 22. I could do that for like two seconds the being on a call, being outside, trying to get back to the, it is, it is so demanding on their, their families and their relationships and relationships are how we ultimately get fuel and they are not getting that. And it is just a really, 
it's just a thing to say people are really busy, but when you really kind of click through in your mind about how they're doing that and how they are also trying to be parents or good friends or a partner or a kid to a parent that needs you, it's really, really, really hard. And so they are my staffers that should be in the Hall of Fame. Again, lucky ducks, they asked for it. Like, I'm not, you know, these are like kind of alligator tears. Like, I get it. But uh, in the moment and what it means like to feel like you're winning when you actually do do a load of laundry, like that's, it's hard. It's really hard. All for really important, the most important thing you can ever do in your life. But it is, it is hard. I, I actually think that's a beautiful answer and it is oh, you're um, so nice to absolutely well-received, well-received. And, and you also embody all of that uh, sacrifice and effort uh, and energy that you just described. Um, that has been you through your career in public service. And this podcast, as you know, it's my ode to public service and being a staffer. And um, I, I can't express enough how much I admire you and I respect you. Oh, and I am Jim. so appreciative uh, as a citizen of this of this beloved country of ours Jim. for all that you have done to make it better. Um, so thank you for what you've done your whole career. And, and thank you for talking with us well, today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being part of my, thank you for being part of my posse. So I really oh, am very, great, always. very grateful for it. All right. It's been great, Jim. Have a great weekend. Been great. Thank you. You do the same. Okay. Be well. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.